everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, Discovery Church. Today is a beautiful, scandalous, troubling day. Because I think this is a day, and if you're here, uh, I think this room will represent a wide spectrum of folks who are engaging this day. I think it is troubling. Because this is a day that fundamentally asks the question, what do you believe? And and I think it's okay that we're in a room that's filled with spectrum. I'm going to show us just a quick clip of what it is. uh, If you were to look on our church website right now, we have a button that says, what do you believe? This is what that button would tell you. And as you interact with this, I want you to just be asking questions. What do I believe about that? I don't think this is a video, if anyone who is paying attention, I, I do not think that you can finish this video not having questions. So what do you believe? Here's what we believe. Check this out. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten, of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I have so many questions. I hope that you do too. Because this is not a simple thing that we gather around. For, for thousands of years, the people of the text have been folks who have gathered around Scripture to say, what does this mean? This is a head-scratcher, and today of all days should evoke some of the biggest questions that we have, some of which because they invite us into this conversation about faith. 
because we're being asked a question that demands an answer. According to the story, he died. For those that were here for our Good Friday service, what a hoot. It was so good. It wasn't really fun, but it was good. My friend Brian left that time just dejected, like, man, this story is so sad. What happens next? And if you're willing to engage the story, incredible things continue to happen, and that's some of what we're here today to talk about. What do you believe about Jesus? Did Jesus come back from the dead? It's not hard to agree, most historians would agree, yeah, we can look at Friday, Jesus for sure died. Most historians even won't qualm with that. But it's Sunday that troubles us. And what I want to hone in on for today is, isn't it funny, all all these beliefs, all these things that we have to talk about and ask questions about, if you could summarize them just in, in even a symbol, what would that symbol be? What is this story? And I don't know that you have to be a follower of Jesus. I think you just have to be a citizen of planet Earth who's been around Christians long enough to know, well, if you're going to sum it up, it's probably in a cross. That's really the thing that tells this whole story. I love that at our church in particular, we would say it's actually an empty cross. That's going to sum up the story. And it continues to ask this question, is the cross empty? Does that sum up the story? And it's strange, it's a total paradox. We'd be like, yes, let's celebrate. How we're gonna celebrate? We're gonna sum up this whole story in a first century torture device for capital punishment. It's like super bizarre. In fact, the the early Christians, as they were trying to sum it up, they would not use a cross. The symbol of the early church, they would actually, they had this fish symbol that they would use. And the whole reason why is because at least early on in the Roman Empire, this little tiny group of people who knew the story of Jesus, who were trying to share it, were looking at the symbol of the cross going, no, that's a sign of a criminal. We don't want that to be our first foot forward. We'd like to choose something else. It could have been anything. It could have been a stone to represent the stone that was rolled away from the tomb. It could have been that. It could have been a seed, this concept of something that dies but then comes back to life. It could have been this idea of a house or a temple. Jesus said, I'm going to tear apart this whole system and I'm going to rebuild it in who I am. It could have been any of those things. Why do we sum this whole story up with a cross? And Paul, as he's writing in the book of 1 Corinthians and scripture, even points this out. I kind of have chopped this up a little bit, so this emphasis is mine, but in 1 Corinthians 1.18, as he's beginning to write to a group of people to explain the story, he says it this way, for the message about the cross is foolishness. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. <laughs> Paul's starting out this letter going, this is a weird story. G.K. Chesterton once said, in order to be a Christian, you have to have a pretty healthy appreciation for paradox. We celebrate a cross. Where does that come from? I think to help point us in the right direction, Paul is beginning to point to this symbol of the cross as a trophy for us. This is something that we grab onto, not just in story, but with our lifestyles. He he talks about for the Jews, they wanted a sign. These Jewish people in the first century, their whole idea was we're waiting for a chosen one, for this Messiah, somebody to come to save us from all the bad news we continue to read in the world. 
And man, if there's a group of people I can resonate with, we need somebody to come save us from all the bad things happening in the world. So show us a sign. Show us something powerful. Show us something amazing. And what do they get? A dead guy on a cross. And you have the Greeks and these Greek people in the first century. They want a convincing argument. Show me with your mind, with your philosophy. Make this all make sense. And what do they get? They get this picture of a suffering God. That makes no sense as a sentence. A servant being the ideal posture for all of us. That doesn't make sense. That the way to godliness is not something that you earn, does not compute. Teach us or show us something mind-blowing, something godlike, and then we'll know it's you. And what do they get? A dead guy on a cross. So it doesn't add up. And this is a day where we gather again as we hear these stories to ask either more questions or to walk away laughing because it can be a silly story. It doesn't add up. What are you expecting today? When you see this Jesus, when you think about who he was and what he did, what do you see? Do you see God? Do you see a dead guy on a cross, a historical figure who was a great leader? What do you see? And I have loved, we've been in this sermon series for the last several weeks where we've been inviting our global partners to come in and share as you read Jesus from where you sit in the world, what's unique to you? What's something that in Albania you can see about this story that we just can't see in America? Tell me what it's like from Compton, California or from Paraguay. It's been so much fun. And today is the final day of the series where we're going to engage a totally different culture and see it through their lens. And today's a weird one. Because there's two main perspectives when you're reading the New Testament and the Bible that you try and think through. The first, which I adore, is the Jewish perspective. What were Jewish people thinking and feeling as they were reading this story? But the second one, which we're going to hone in on today, is the Roman perspective. If you're a Roman person reading this story, what is it that you're feeling, that you're thinking, that you're seeing that in America in the 21st century we just miss? The etymology of the English word trophy is actually borrowed from the French. Uh, in the 16th century, that's really where it all came together from the word trophée. It really refers to a prize of war. That's what a trophy is, a prize of war. Uh, tropeon is actually where the French stole it from. Tropeon is the Greek word. This is the word that the Romans would have used. And it was an idea that was utilized by many cultures around the globe, but in the Roman Empire, a tropeon, a trophy, had a very particular function. So here's what it was. This is so brilliant. This is so cool. When you win a war, if you're in the Roman military, when that war is done, you gather everybody together, you survey the battlefield, and you go, where is the point where we knew that the battle was won? And everyone would agree. It actually wouldn't be that hard to figure out because you would see a whole pile of enemy spears and swords and shields. They would just like, mainly because that's either, that's where we killed most of them or that's where they also knew that we were winning. So they threw everything down and they ran the other direction. So you just kind of see like, here's the highest concentration of their stuff. Then what you do is you'd go cut down a tree, you'd dig a hole and you'd shove that tree down in the hole and then you would find the armor and the weapons of the king that you defeated, or who was the military leader. 
and you would gather all those things together and you would hang them on this tree that you'd put there. And the Greeks actually documented this really, really well. I have some pictures to show you what these tropeons would look like, these trophies. And here we go. This is, this is really, really fun. The first one, this is a vase from 450 BC from the Greeks. Uh, you can see this is uh, Athena, actually the goddess of war, who's looking at a trophy, a tropeon. And this is all of the stuff from the defeated king. This next one, this is actually a coin from 45 BC. This is commemorating Julius Caesar and all of his victories. This was literally the money in your pocket would remind you, we won. This next one is from Trajan's Column. This is a really famous piece of architecture and art. This was made in 113 AD. Uh, so many things around it, but if you zoom in on this one particular part, you can see a tropeon. There's actually several tropeons that are all around there. But you can see the helmet, the armor, the shields, and at the bottom of this tree, a pile of all the enemy's stuff. Uh, in the year about 1500, an artist named Andrea Mantegna actually uh, drew a picture, um, had a painting of Julius Caesar. And this picture, I think, just really captures some incredible stuff. You have Julius here looking, looking very teenagerish, uh, coming back from wars with both the Gauls and the Persians. If I could show you this full installation of artwork, what you would see is there's all these different very clear sections. One section has just the vase bearers. Here's all the vases that we took. Here's the picture bearers. Here's the standard bearers. And here's all the captives. It's this massive installation. It's beautiful. And this last one, and just to make sure this is clear, all of these were tracking through time, through human civilization history. In the year 1776, while our country was being founded, they were building the Schönbrunn Castle in Vienna. And one of the things they built as you go up the steps into this castle are two massive tropeon on either side. And this is what they look like. They're gorgeous. And I was telling some friends backstage, if you like... To, you have to have your computer this close to your face to really appreciate all the detail that's going on in this thing. This is a tropeon. This marks the spot on the battlefield where we knew that we'd won. It's made up of all of the weapons and all of the armor of the enemy, the things that they tried to use to repel us, to subjugate us, to beat us back. That's what a tropeon is. I really wanted to surprise you today. I love surprises. We're like, oh, crazy reveal. Guess what this looks like? <laughs> I'm guessing you've beaten me to the punch. It kind of looks like a cross. So if you're a first century Roman citizen hearing this story for the first time, and if this story is being summed up with this symbol of a cross, one of the things that will go through your mind is A, a crucifix actually looks like a T, a, a capital T. A cross or a tropeon looks like a lowercase t. If this becomes the symbol of what it is that we're talking about, we're not talking about a criminal. We're talking about a victor. And to them, they lean in and go, so tell me more of this story because we just covered this section on Good Friday where we had a criminal hanging on a cross dead, and that seems like a problem if we're going to say that he won. What is going on in this story? There are some things that I think it's really important that we look at if this is how a Roman is looking at this story, going, well, then what's hanging on the tropeon? If Jesus won, 
What was hanging on that cross? And I just want to take us through some different elements of the passion story of Jesus, the death of Jesus, to point out a couple things that I think right away they would have gone, oh, here's the things that he hung on the cross. This is the armor and the weapons of the enemy. Number one, power and dominion and violence were hanging on that cross. If you recall this part of the story, at one point as these Roman soldiers are beating Jesus to death, or within an inch of his life at least, at one moment they take a red robe and they throw it over his shoulders and they put a staff in his hands. For those who have been doing the Biola Devo uh, with us through this Lent season, it has been so much fun engaging some of the art for me. One of the things that actually popped up this last week was a piece of artwork from James Tussaud. Uh, It's right here on the screen for you. Um, This is called Jesus Before Pilate, interview number two. And one thing that just immediately stands out, you don't always see Jesus looking this way. I know it's a little bit dark, but you see him with this Roman robe over his shoulders and this staff in his hands. They were making fun of him. It was kind of this military king type of a outfit they were putting on him to poke fun at him. And Tussaud just captures it so beautifully. And to make sure that you see, like, wow, Tussaud's not messing around. That picture of Julius Caesar that we had before, let's put them side by side. Here's if we just zoom in on Jesus. Here's Julius Caesar. This is a conquering king. This is a warrior. And in the Roman Empire, that meant let's go out and beat the snot out of the enemy. As a quick aside, wouldn't it be hilarious if we still had trophies like this today? Like my six-year-old soccer team at the end of the season, they're like, hey, we collected all the jerseys and all the cleats from all the other sixth graders. We put them in a pile. We've burned them with their tears. We've written down their names. Congratulations. Ridicule as you see fit, you know? Meanwhile, all the winners are like, I don't like winning anymore. It's like, this is a terrifying thing, but it's that kind of like oppress, win, defeat, dominate. And on the cross, one of the things, if you're a Roman citizen that you're seeing that's hung on that cross is power and domination and violence. The weapons and the armor of the enemy. Another thing that you would see if you looked at that cross is the need for control. This is really akin to that first point, but they make this crown of thorns and they put it on his head, now just overtly calling out, you say that you're the king of the Jews. But what do kings do? They wield authority and power. And in a lot of the same ways, the same domination, this my will. And for a Roman citizen as they're looking at it and they're considering, I have my will. I want to be the king of my own life. What's been put on that cross? A crown of thorns. My need for control hangs on that cross. Another thing, everything done wrong was put on that cross. Crosses were invented for criminals or for enemies. It was a way to to not just kill them, but to torture them. And it was really sending a message. They were kind of first century billboards to everybody else around. They would put these right next to the main streets in town as you would walk in and walk out so that everybody would know, don't mess with the Roman Empire. This is what we'll do to you. This is what would happen to criminals, people who had done things wrong, people who had engaged things with injustice or even accusation. Isaiah, in his book, in in scripture, in chapter 53, has this line, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
really just saying, hey, this Jesus, what hangs on the cross, everything that you see there is all the sin, all the things done wrong, all the injustice, all the accusation, all of that hangs on the cross. Those are armor and weapons of the enemy. What else hangs on this cross? Fear. Jesus, as he's in his final moments, has this line that he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am alone. I am in the dark. I am scared. Fear hangs on this cross. And to begin making sure that we're connecting the dots as we move ahead, can you identify with any of these things in your own life, in your own story? I missed shame. Sorry about that. They strip him naked on this cross. He's totally exposed to the world. Ridicule is thrown at him like crazy. He's being exposed as less than or unwanted or even bad. That's what hangs on this cross. Physical pain and suffering hangs on this cross. Have you had much of that in your life and in your story? Do you see that in the world around? Armor and weapons of the enemy. And finally, death hangs on this cross. He died there, a physical body. And this really is the keystone of this whole story. Everything comes together here. And if this is not a story that you've heard before, I just want to sum it up very briefly. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, God loved them. There was this perfection around the world that they were in, this holiness, this set-apartness, this rightness. And there were some very simple ideas that God had. I want you to choose me. And the only way to really set up a system like that is if there was a way to choose something other than God. And so he had this tree that he made in this garden that he put them in. He said, hey, this tree will grow fruit. Don't eat from that fruit. Don't choose that. Choose me. Beautiful system. And as you can guess, the story doesn't go super great. They end up eating from this tree. Same, they choose something other than God, something other than life. And to choose something other than life is to choose death. Luke records this funny scene as he's talking about this story of Jesus in his gospel where Jesus has died. He's taken the iniquity of us all, all the sins of the world, all the choices that we've made through all of history to choose something other than God. Jesus has taken all of those things and put them on himself, and he has paid that price because the price for choosing death is death. Jesus dies on a cross. Luke, as he's telling this story, talks about, and then he came back. And this is where questions should continue to flood out of you. How, why, is this possible? And what does this mean? He sets up this story uh, saying that the disciples, his followers, his students really, had just been hanging out with a couple folks who had come running into this room that they were camped out in. They said, we've just seen him. We just had a conversation with him. Jesus is alive. And they ho-hum and they stare at their shoelaces and all of a sudden, bam, standing in the middle of the room is Jesus, scars and all. And the first thing he says is, hi, do you have anything to eat? <laughs> Which is, uh, as a dude, I'm like, yes. I, uh, and I can only imagine how hungry death would make you. Like, especially if you're like, oh, I was dead for three days. Can I get something up in here? Yes, is the answer. He's hungry. 
And then he gets into this conversation with his friends. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, and this is perhaps the greatest news that these men had ever heard. And I would posit to you, these are the greatest words that you or I have ever heard. Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things. The best sermon ever heard. I didn't just die and come back from the death. There's a why to this whole thing. This has been a story that's been being woven together since the time of Moses and before. And what is the natural outcome of this story? Now that we're standing here together, scars and all, fish and bread in hand, that repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed. That the story that's to be told from all of this is it's done. It's finished. You are free from sin. The enemies that you have been fighting, you do not have to fight anymore because I won. And as people now who would be seeing this story through the lens of a first century Roman, the next parts of the story become a, a, a vision of taking Jesus in hand and going back to this battlefield of our lives and going, what is it that's there? What is on this battlefield? Let me show you that slide again that has all the things that a Roman citizen would have seen. What's on this battlefield of your life? My need for power, the violence that I feel in my heart as I engage the darkness of the world around. Jesus looks at that and says, I I beat it. You don't have to fight that anymore. My need for control my desire to be king of my life, to make decisions that benefit me, I, I, I don't have to do that anymore. Jesus beat that on the battlefield. All of these things that I have done wrong in my story and the shame and the guilt that I carry with me everywhere, you don't have to fight that anymore. I beat that. As we walk through this place on the battlefield, do you see their, their weapons? Do you see their shields? Let's put a tree in the ground because I want you to remember, you don't have to fight that anymore. Have you ever felt spiritually abandoned? Like I wasn't there? It's a tool of the enemy. It's a weapon that he loves to use to take you out. You don't have to fight that anymore. I'm right here. And ultimately, death Man, if there's an enemy that's hard to look in the face still to this day, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, it is death. And as Jesus takes our hand and walks us up to that place where that enemy once stood, he said, hey, you're going to die. The problem is that you're going to come back to life again if you grab my hand. Death does not win anymore. Let's hang that on the tree too. It's not an enemy you have to fight anymore. Where do you come into this story? Why should you care? 
because this is a trophy that is offered to you. It is the defeat of all these things freely given if you are willing to receive it and you receive it by grace. This is not one of those things where Jesus says, let me show you how to fight these things. I will give you the manual, fight your way out of it. He just says, hey, I've taken care of it. Receive it freely. You are forgiven. And it is a brilliant stroke of genius to me that the spiritual solution to our problems would be reflected in a physical reality that sin is forgiven on a cross. And at the end of the day, the trophy goes to the most selfless one. So I think this means three things. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what you, what's been done to you, this cross is offered as a trophy. And to receive it means three things. Number one, you receive it as a gift. It's not something you've done, but something that Jesus has done for and in you. Number two, you receive it as a, mar- a marker of the battlefield of your own life that all of these things that he has defeated on that field, he is defeating in you still. He's begun this process and that this story of resurrection, it will be finished. And number three, that as you receive it as a marker in your own life on the battlefield of who you are in your story, that now that you know that there is a person with a new, uh, that you are a person with a new king who is part of a new kingdom, a king and a kingdom that invite you to learn his, selfish, his selfless posture, generous in all you have, to be vulnerable in how you love, to be hopeful no matter how dark things get. The battle's won. The tropeon is in the ground. What hangs on it is the armor and the weapons of the enemy. And now that that fight is done, there's a whole new story to be told and it's offered. I'm gonna bring out the band. But if you've been paying attention, I think there's so many questions. I think one of those questions is, well, then what happens? What happens after that? And as Alex said in our video, that's gonna be our whole next three months together is beginning. We're only gonna get about halfway through the book of Acts. And this is the story of what then happened after Jesus came back from the dead. What did this group of people look like? How did they engage life together? In an era post-COVID, I think there are many who are wondering what the point of church is. Why don't we just watch it online? Is this just a source for the dissemination of information? And I think to understand the point of the church, even the point of following Jesus, it's helpful to return back to this origin story. This will take us through the 4th of July, and then we'll continue to have some fun after that with some other things that we'll do. There's a second thing, if you're finding yourself asking questions, and just as a reminder, so am I. Starting on Mondays, not tomorrow night, but the next three Mondays in a row, starting on the 17th, there's just going to be a group of us that are going to get together down at Frolic Brewing. Uh, This is all posted on the website, dates and times, but this is just a place for us to ask questions to each other. I think to put into practice what these first century followers of Jesus were doing, asking questions, encouraging each other, and going back to the text, going, what does it say and what does that mean? If that's something that you'd like to show up to, grab a salad or a pizza and hang out with us as we just ask questions. And ultimately, what happened next was community. 
a group of people come together after this story and it's beautiful. And I would just invite you, if this is something that's newer in your journey, come be with us. We are a people that gather on Sundays and all throughout the week because we're trying to understand this trophy that we've received. And we're trying to also figure out how do we share this with everyone around? Because if this story is true, it is good news. That video that we watched right at the beginning, I don't know if you caught it, but resurrection showed up twice. Once where it's talking about Jesus was raised from the dead. And the second where it talks about you are being invited also to blow past death no longer as an enemy. It's a weird symbol that we have to sum up our story. But if you look at it through the lens of a first century Roman, it's actually quite perfect and poetic. Why do we look at a cross and say that sums it up? Because Jesus won. He rose from the dead as the victorious king who offers a totally new way to do life and you're invited. Let's pray. Jesus, there are things in our world. When I read the news, when I read my journal, things that continue to convince me that there is darkness, there is evil, there are things wrong. Thanks for a story that continues to not deny that those things are there. And thanks for a story that doesn't just say, don't look at those things, they don't matter, look over here. Thank you for a story that says, I will do business with that. That is an enemy. That is not how things should be, and I am going to bat for that. Thank you for a story that involves you stepping in for us to fight the enemies that there was no way we could have taken on our own. And thanks for offering us a new way forward. And on this day where we're faced with the troubling, beautiful, scandalous question of, is this true? Thanks that your words to your disciples, to your students was, you've been witnesses. I told you the story. I'm standing right here. And for 2,000 years, people with emphatic belief have said, I believe that that's true. He is risen. It is true. Thank you for this place where we can gather together to share stories and to be reminded of what's true and good and beautiful. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.